And it's been so good to be together, to hear our voices singing together. Hadn't that been a treat? Yes? Been a treat for me to hear. Again, I'm up front, so I get to hear everybody's voices together singing. It's such an encouragement to my heart. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of 3 John. It may be easier for you to start at the back of your Bible and turn to the left. You'll find some maps, probably some reference things the book of Revelation, the book of Jude, and then the book of 3 John. book of 3 John. And we come to the last of John's epistles. And if you remember, 1 John was really the main letter. It was sort of a sermon that John wanted to be read to the church, likely there in Ephesus, and he wanted it to be read aloud. Remember, in the first century, if you wanted to, you couldn't have sent a recording of some kind. So this was the closest way that John could communicate directly with these folks. And alongside 1 John, John sent two additional letters that we call 2nd and 3rd John. 2nd John was uh, shorter, and so is 3rd John, a lot shorter, but they're very personal from the apostle to these churches. If you remember, 2 John, which we looked at last week, was sent to the elect lady and her children, meaning to the church and her members. And it was sent to show John's heart for this particular community of faith. Then we see 3 John, which is the shortest letter in the whole New Testament. Just 219 Greek words are here, and it's also the most personal. He writes to Gaius, the leader of this church, and we get to be sort of a fly on the wall, listening to John the Apostle share his heart with Gaius. And we'll see them get very specific to very specific issues that were going on in this particular local church. And while none of us are Gaius, right, and none of us attend the first church of Ephesus, we can benefit from this short letter. We get an example here of how to help and how to hurt our church. We get the answer to the big And God's word has big answers for us from the book of 3 John. So look with me there at 3 John. The word of God says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. 
Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This is the word of God. If you notice, as we read 3 John, we read about four men, and their examples are meant to be a lesson to us. We read first of Gaius, the church leader whom John says he is beloved. And he prays that he would prosper and he rejoiced and he rejoices in his ministry. And we read particularly in verse 5 about Gaius supporting these traveling Christian missionaries. We read in verse 7 that these missionaries had gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These men left everything they knew to share the gospel with people that they didn't know. And Gaius is praised for supporting them, both likely financially alongside his church, but also with his hospitality. He housed them in his home, he fed them, he took care of them as they were traveling, but not everyone was happy about Gaius doing that. We read in verse 9 about a guy named Diotrephes. And he not only rejected the brothers, he condemned those who wanted to help them. He went so far as to kick, those, to kick people out of the church who wanted to help these missionaries. It's possible that Diotrephes took what John said in 2 John and twisted it for his own uh, gain. If you remember back in 2 John, just a letter over, we read this last week in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." It's possible Diotrephes took this and was applying this to these missionaries coming around. But if you remember, we saw last week, John was speaking of supporting and affirming false teachers who were trying to destroy the church, not to people who were trying to spread the church and spread the gospel message. Diotrephes missed the point. And we don't know whether Diotrephes' issue was over a particular theological matter Maybe he didn't like something about their approach to missions. But, and it's also possible, and probably very likely, he was just a grouchy, difficult person. That, that's something only first century churches have, right? Modern day churches don't have grumpy, difficult people, right? But Diotrephes is remembered for his opposition to good, God-glorifying mission work. What a sad legacy to be remembered for being in opposition to something good and right. We then read third about a guy named Demetrius, and we don't read a lot about him, but we do read that he had a good testimony. He wasn't known for how he publicly engaged in controversy, but rather he was remembered for his consistent, quiet efforts at faithfulness. To put it another way, he was just a good old boy. And you knew it. He was faithful in all that he did. And fourth and finally, we read about John, the apostle, writing with love and care for these leaders and helping to guide him through the landmines of ministry. 
And he closes his letter with a longing to see them, and he sends his greetings, and notice his last words there in verse 15. He says this, greet the friends each by name. He says, in other words, give them a hug for me. (laughs) John sends his love for Gaius and to the church as a whole. And in these four men, we find modeled how we should and shouldn't engage with the local church, how we can help and how we can hurt our church. And let's start with the help before we move to the hurt. So how to help your church. First, how to help your church. The first thing to do is to be committed. The first thing that's important to helping your church is to be committed. This is basic, but so important. Let me tell you this. Your presence is an encouragement. Friends, not just to me, not just to the elders and leadership, but friends, it's an encouragement to all of us. John recognized that letters were great, but that not being together physically meant something was missing. Look again at the last few verses, 13 to 15. We're tempted just to gloss over them to get to the end of the book, but these are so profound. Look at this. I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. He's saying, I got a lot I could tell you. I could write it out. If John were in our day, he says, hey, I could send it to you in a text or in an email, but it's a little too much for a text or an email. I want to be there face to face. I want to have your presence. I want to hear your voice during singing. I want to have your fellowship before and after our gathering. I want to see your volunteering in a particular ministry. And he reminds us that our presence here matters. It's a big thank you, and I'd love to echo that thank you to those who serve and who show up and who make gathering together a priority. It deeply encourages me and the leaders here, and friends, it encourages so many others here who are discouraged and downtrodden. And this doesn't mean that there aren't times to miss gathering together. You may be hindered with sickness You may be traveling, there may be an emergency, and I don't want you to hear this as sort of a beating you down for good reasons that may happen that you may miss gathering together. But it does tell us that if you think your Sunday is better spent under the covers or out on the lake, there's a whole group of people here who miss you and who are encouraged when you're here and not there, who would rather you be here with us than out there away from us. See, church has never been about any one of us individually, but it's about us together. Your commitment matters. This is what church membership's all about. It isn't about having your name on a list it isn't, about, it, it isn't about that. It's about committing to a specific group of people to walk together through life with. It gives specific names and faces to the one another commands of the Bible. Have you ever read these commands and they kind of feel crippling? Maybe you've done this. Maybe you read where the Bible says, pray for one another. And have you ever sat there and thought, am I supposed to pray for every Christian on the face of the earth? That's a lot of weight, isn't it, right? You don't even know these people. Or have you ever seen the call where the Bible says to help those who are suffering, and you're like, there's a lot of suffering. (laughs) 
I can't help all of that, right? I, I physically can't. And, it's, and this isn't telling us it's wrong to pray for or help those outside of your faith family. But friends, the local church is the place where we put these commands into practice first and foremost. It says, hey, remember, who is your neighbor? The one closest to you. Sure, you've got other neighbors, but friends, don't think about the one way over there when you're not even taking care of the one down the pew from you. God's people aren't meant to, sh- aren't meant to just show up. We're meant to plug in. So do you want to help your church? He says, show up and be committed. And if you want to take a step beyond filling a seat, there's a a way to do that. You can get connected with our church. You can grab a connect card at the back desk, and you can fill it out that you want to join the church or you want to take a next step, and we'd love to get you along in that process because John has more in mind here than just filling a seat once a week. He has life that we would live together. And he says, if you want to help your church, be committed. But he says, second, if you want to help your church, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Look back now at the beginning of the letter, at how John greets Gaius. Look at verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth... Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. He prays that Gaius literally would prosper and be sound. Now, while I do think physical health is a part of this, John has in mind their spiritual health and soundness. He wants to make sure all is going well with the souls of others. Do we pray for each other's faith? Do we even know about how the souls of others are doing here? Or do we stay surface level? Y'all know what I mean. You walk in, somebody asks you, how you doing? Good. And then you get to your seat as quick as you can. I don't want them asking any more questions, because if they knew what my week was like, they just wouldn't be able to handle it, right? But we've got to go beyond the surface. And this doesn't mean we come in here every Sunday and we just share every deep, dark secret of our life and week to anybody who'll stop and listen to us. It's probably not the best idea, right? You, you may need to get in a small group where you can kind of begin to do that or, or building relationships with others where you can do that. But I do think it means asking good questions. How about do this? Instead of just simply asking a person how they are, because you know what they're going to say, good. Everybody on Sunday at church is good for some reason, right? Ask something like, how can I pray for you? They can't good their way out of that one, right? That's a very specific question that will get you a lot further than you know. Now, some people may not, may still not give you very much, and that's okay, but you're at least asking a deeper question than simply how are you. It shows that we are a community concerned with each other's well-being. Friends, and are we praying for one another? This is something I think our church as a whole has maybe not been the strongest about, is coming together and just praying. Praying for our souls to prosper in the gospel. And so in the coming months, you're going to see more opportunities to do this. And so many people will say things like, well, it's just the prayer meeting. I don't need to go to that. But let me remind you, if you read through the book of Acts, every single move of God in the book of Acts started in a prayer meeting. (laughs) So friends, don't miss times to come together and pray. And one of the ways you can help your church is simply to pray for it. 
to pray for the people in it, to maybe make a list of people or to go through the, the, the church directory or to go on the Facebook group and to scroll down through the names or even right now look around and see, oh, they're missing. Let me pray for them this week. And to pray not just for what occurs inside of it, but for the people who gather inside of it. If you want to help your church, be committed. You want to help your church, be prayerful. You want to help your church, third, be positive. Be positive. Now, some are going to hear that and go, well, what what does he mean by that? Look what John does. On the heel of prayer, of talking about prayer, John celebrates the way God is at work in his church. And remember, this is a church that just like us is full of sinful, imperfect people. And look what he says in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. He's rejoiced in the way that these people are just following God. He looked around and noticed the way God was at work, and he celebrated that. Rather than making a list of the ways that everyone could step up, John spent his time counting the evidences of grace. He counted the blessings going on in the church rather than the burdens. See, attitude matters so much. You will never be happy in a church if you're always looking for the sins of others. Because let me tell you something, they're always going to be there. And for some reason, the sins of others are always worse than our own, right? Have you ever noticed that? It's always, well... They're doing that, but, you know, I, I have all sorts of excuses for what I do. You'll never be happy in a church if you're always looking for the way things can be done better. Now, this doesn't mean churches shouldn't seek to be efficient and productive, but I think our culture of efficiency has really just made us discontent with the way things are. We get mad that we've got to wait 10 extra seconds at the McDonald's. How dare I? How dare I have to wait 10 extra seconds, right? And so, and this, this efficiency culture has made us just discontent with how things are. But John was here to look for God at work. Things that were praiseworthy and noteworthy because God at work in others produces Godward joy in us. You can look around and remain miserable and defeated looking at what everyone else is doing wrong, or you can look for the way God is at work, where heaven is at work here on earth. You can look around and see there's people here today who are suffering in their life, and we all know how they're suffering, and they're enduring by faith. They're here. Friends, we can look around and see young folks who are standing for truth. We can look around and see families worshiping with their children. We can look around and see elderly finishing their race well. We can look around and see a church with babies and new faces in it. Friends, there is much to rejoice if we choose to see it. Celebrate the way God is at work and try to stay positive. Try to stay positive at the way God is at work among us. Fourth, the fourth way to help your church is to be hospitable. Be hospitable. This is really the heart of the letter, the central issue of the epistle. Gaius is commended for his hospitality towards strangers. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. 
Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He's commended for his hospitality. And the word hospitality literally means his love of strangers. And the word support there in verse 8, we often think of, well, I'm going to write him a check and never really have to deal with them. But he has more of an idea of holding them up. He has them over, spends time with them. These people were using their guest bathroom and eating the food out of their fridge. Would we say that hospitality marks our Christian community? Would we say that we are welcoming to people who aren't quite like us? Who, who, to people we may not even know? Let me give you a litmus test for yourself. When you see a new person or a new family walk in the door, maybe after service, you're headed toward that back door because you've got to get to the Cracker Barrel before everybody else. When you see that new family, what is your first inclination? Maybe you go and you don't even notice that there's new people here. That'd be the first thing to do is just to look around a little bit, right? Stick around, see who's here. Or maybe you think, oh, the pastor will do it. I don't need to do it. Or you just assume one of the extroverts in the church are going to do it. Friends, assumption is the enemy of hospitality, And let me tell you this, nobody visits a church concerned about whether the pastor is going to be friendly. Because let me tell you something, when I'm friendly to them, they don't really care because they just assume I'm paid to be friendly to them, right? But when the community as a whole is friendly and hospitality and welcoming, that says something to them. That says something to people. Let me show you something I saw on Twitter. I typically don't show you things I saw on Twitter on a Sunday. But look at this, look at this, look at this. So this guy's name's Matt, and he's quoting somebody else. When you read my husband, he's quoting a, a lady talking about her husband, right? Not his own. Look what he says. My, this, this woman's husband's three rules for engagement when we go to church. An alone person in our gathering is an emergency Friends can wait, introduce a newcomer to somebody else. Friends, most of us here know other people here, and we see them during the week. And he says, hey, the folks you know and see at work can wait. You're going to talk to them on Monday. But the person who you've never met standing before you, that's more of an emergency. And maybe you don't know how to connect with new people. No worries. Here's what you do. You introduce yourself, and then you also make sure to connect them with the introvert that you know can also talk to them, and you just stand there, (laughs) right? You get them. You all know who those people are, who are the social ones. Introduce yourself and get them to them as fast as you can. (laughs) And sometimes, even just an invitation to set with you is such a powerful outreach. Sometimes they just want somebody to sit next to them and not say anything, That's sometimes the best thing you can do is go, hey, sit here and just be quiet. Things are going well, right? John praised Gaius for the way he supported these brothers, the way he showed hospitality to them. 
We'll see in a second how Diotrephes sought to hurt the church and the ministry of, of, of these missionaries through his selfish perspective, but we need to also see that John commends to us a man named Demetrius. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. In other words, he says, hey, don't be like Diotrephes, who we're going to look at in a second, but be like Demetrius. Imitate him. Specifically, he says, fifth, if you want to help your church, here's the lesson, be consistent. Be consistent. Demetrius was known for imitating good. Other people could have a good testimony about him. More than that, the apostle John, and he says even the truth itself, commended him to us. In other words, he was a guy who was living by example. He was walking the walk and talking the talk, walking in a way that was consistent with the faith he professed. In other words, don't, let you, don't leave your faith in the seat at church. Bring it into the world around you and how you walk and how you live and how you do your business and in your vocation, and everything you do. This brings us back to the beginning of the letter. Look at verse 3 again. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I love that image of walking in the truth. Steady, quiet unexciting faithfulness to the truth. That's what he's wanting. Steady, quiet, unexciting faithfulness to the truth. Because sometimes people will run after the truth really, 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 really fast, and then they get tired, and they got to kind of get kind of fall by the wayside a little bit and then get back up and find a good pace to go. He says, we, just, we need to try to live a life that brings attention to God in his way, not to ourselves in our own way. John, Gaius, and Demetrius were men who lived to bring glory and attention to God and his word. But let me, let me give you some disappointing news. Not everybody who goes to church is going to be like them. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is going to be like those three guys and, is, and are going to want to bring attention to Jesus. No, no, no. There's always going to be a temptation for us to walk in our own way and to make church about ourselves. And so Third John doesn't simply teach us how to help our church through the examples of John, Gaius, and Demetrius. We get an example of how to hurt our church through a man named Diotrephes. And, and just consider, again, this has always just struck me. This man, we don't know a ton about him. He doesn't get referenced really anywhere else in the Bible. And he gets remembered forever for this. Look at verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Shoo, I don't want that written on my tombstone. Put self first. <laughs> Speaks wicked nonsense, right? Just, 
John is, is, is clear here. And if you want a guide of what not to do and who not to be and how to hurt your church, look no further. So what, what are the steps to hurting your church? Here's the first step. The first step to hurting your church is this. Be selfish. Be selfish. If you notice verse 9, the phrase literally translates that Diotrephes was a lover of firsts. You ever met those people that just aren't content to be anything other than the top? They've got to be the leader. They've got to be number one. They've got to be the center of attention in everything that they do. And Diotrephes wanted to build the perfect church, and by that he meant one that looked just like him. And he was driven by a passion for his own glory. He says, he said, he teaches us a lesson that if we want church to be about any one of us, we have missed the point. It's not about our desires or our preferences. We are always second. God must be first and supreme. And so the question to ask ourselves is this, are we like Diotrephes when we don't get our way? What happens when maybe something happens and we don't get our way? And this isn't to say there aren't reasons to leave a church, but there are good and wrong reasons to leave a church. There, there are people who leave a church over, over truth issues. The church begins to, begins to wander into things that are untrue and dangerous. But then there's people who just leave because they don't like the coffee. Some of y'all laugh, but there are people who do that and are here, and the, and the reason they church hop is because they really don't want people to really know them, and they're scared of being really known. So they're just going to go from community to community, to hip thing to hip thing, to emotional high to emotional high, but they're empty on the inside. So it says, if you want to hurt your church, be selfish, make it all about you. And closely connected to that, he says the second way to hurt your church is to be resistant. Be resistant. Look at verse 9 again. Look what he says. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he's a lover of first, does not acknowledge our authority. He says, I don't care what John says. He rejects apostolic authority, he rejects what is written, and he is resistant to good and godly authority. He is the sort of guy, and y'all know who I'm talking about, who says, what does John know? That guy on YouTube told me. He'd rather trust some rando on YouTube than an apostle who loves them and cares for them and, and knows what he's talking about. He was really just looking for a reason to justify doing his own thing. And, and the real thing to recognize is nobody, there are so many people that just want to go, I don't have any authority over me. I'm going to reject all authority. When really what they're saying is that they are the authority. He doesn't simply reject all authority. He, he just rejects all authorities that don't agree with him. He isn't even simply about rejecting bad authority. He's resistant to, he's resistant to anyone telling him what to do or how to think. The atrophies believed he's the man, he's the authority, he's the one in charge, and he wants others to follow him, and when they don't follow him, he was willing to kick him out of the church. He was willing to speak negatively against leadership. Look at verse 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. This guy had Twitter. 
He was just tweeting out attacks at the leaders. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. I really know the answer. And John says, no, that is wicked nonsense. Baseless gossip without substance, ignorance, arrogance. It's fake news. Don't believe it. And I think we live in a day where we are prone to believe the little guy who speaks truth to power and who brings criticism against those in authority. But John says we need to have discerning ears because they might be pointing out some good and right things that need to be corrected, but they also could just be speaking wicked nonsense. We've got to ask ourselves, whenever we hear somebody attacking authority, no matter who it is, is the problem with the person in authority, or do they simply have a problem with any authority? Because you're going to find there are some people who just don't want to be told what to do, and they're going to be resistant to any authority in their life, in their church. They're going to be resistant to pastoral leadership. They're going to be resistant to the authority of the Bible. And they're even going to be resistant to the lordship of Jesus over their lives. How do we relate to authority? Because all of us are people in authority. We all are in families. We all are in jobs, and we have people who we are in authority over. But we're also all people under authority. All of us have a boss. And if we are the boss, friends, we got a boss in heaven (laughs) that we got to be accountable to. We are all in and under authority, or will be in and under authority in our life. And we need to be careful not to be resistant to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, because when we are, we are resistant to God himself. Now, obviously, there are times where if earthly authorities want you to contradict heavenly authorities, you go with what the highest and the top authority says. We obey God rather than man. But we often just need to ask ourselves, not necessarily if we're following heaven's commands, but sometimes we just want to be resistant and difficult. (laughs) We just don't want to go along with it. Don't be resistant. Look now at verse 10. And not content with that, Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here's the third and final way to hurt your church. Third, be unwelcoming. You want to hurt the church here? Be unwelcoming. Notice Diotrephes wasn't simply content to speak against the leaders and to reject them. He refused to welcome these Christian missionaries. He was even stopping those who were trying to and was doing everything in his power to put them out of the church. And you got to remember, it wasn't that Diotrephes says, hey, I don't want him in my home. Let's put him in a hotel down the street. No, no, no. They don't have hotels in the first century where you can put these missionaries up. He says, no, I want them out on the street in danger. To Diotrephes, any stranger or change was seen as a danger to his tradition, to his comfort, to his prejudice. What Diotrephes was doing here is wicked because to be unwelcoming is to be ungodly. And in fact, hospitality is commended to us all over the scripture. Let me show you a couple places. Hebrews chapter 13 reflects back on Genesis 18 and 19, and we read this. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, but thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He says, you may not know who you may be serving or what may happen because you served them. 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that elders and pastors, Christian leaders, mature godly folks must be hospitable. And Jesus tells a parable about hospitality, particularly hospitality to our fellow Christians. And he tells us that ultimately how we treat other believers, how we treat the church is going to be brought up on Judgment Day. This is the last thing I want you to see. Matthew chapter 25. Turn over there to Matthew chapter 25 and look at this parable Jesus tells. And let's consider this. He says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his, on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And look what made the difference. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you naked and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and were in prison and visit you? And the king will say and answer them. Here's this point. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Consider it. And here notice he says the least of these, my brothers. He has in mind how we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. How we relate to the church is evidence of our relationship with God. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't bring works to the table, but friends, true faith in Christ cares for others who share their faith. And look how he finishes verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to see here, Jesus so identifies with his church and with his people that what is done to them is considered something done for him. Doesn't this echo the words that Jesus spoke to Saul, asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was persecuting the church. And this is a reminder to us that to disregard or intentionally harm, to take an intentional effort to harm God's people, is to do that toward Christ himself. And see how serious God takes his body 
and how flippant we often are about his body. But this reality, Jesus being so intertwined with his people, is also a display of God's love because he identifies with sinners. He's united himself to sinful, broken, messy people that anything done to him is done to them is considered something done to him. We through faith are united to Christ himself. His death becomes our death. His resurrection, a reality we share in. We are united to our Savior. What an incredible reality. Forgiven of our sin. Adopted into the family of God. Given eternal life and hope in heaven. Put into a family of faith to grow and thrive. And united with our Savior in a mysterious, unbreakable bond. If you're not a Christian today, that can be true of you. You can experience that through turning from your sin and self and trusting in Jesus. And if you are a Christian today, you can give give of yourself so that others can experience the fullness of union with Christ and union with his body, the church. What better cause to give our life toward, to be committed to, prayerful toward, positive about, hospitable toward What better way to give ourselves? May we be known as people who helped the cause of Christ through the church rather than being remembered as those who hurt the cause of Christ through his church. Let us stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have loved us and given us eternal hope and grace through your son, Jesus. You've united us so much to yourself and you take your church so serious that when somebody messes with one of your kids, you say, they're messing with me. And so today, if there's somebody here who doesn't have that sort of union, that close relationship with you, and they want it, Lord, I pray right now, they would pray to receive it. They would come and cry out to you, and you'll come into their life and save them and bring them into a right relationship with you. I also pray for those of us that are here that are your people, Lord, that you would help us to love the church more. The Bible says that you so loved your church, that you shed your blood to save her to purchase her, and to wash her clean. And so, Lord, what greater priority should we give than to the local body of believers? Lord, help us to be committed. Help us to be a more welcoming and hospitable people so that we could serve others to know you, love you, and know you. Lord, I ask in these moments that as we take time to respond, that you would cause us, however we need to, to do business with you, to come forward and pray or to make commitments where we are to serve you more and serve you better. That's to be glorified in our time together. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
gather as a church to profess, right? This is our story and our song, and we praise our Savior together through our life and through our gathering together. Before we close with the benediction, if you would want to take the next step to be more engaged in our local church, there's a connect desk there at the back with a red connect card that you'll find. There's also a link to do it online. There's places there you can take next steps. Fill that out, drop it in the basket, and we'll follow up with you on a next steps on ways to help and be more involved and committed here at Crossroads. We close this service with a benediction, a blessing as we head out into the world as God's people to serve a lost and dying world. This from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.